Let's now have God's word open us up to Mark chapter 9. We'll read verses 14 all the way down to 29. Let's all rise for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. A brief prayer. Father, we ask that you would grow and strengthen our faith, that you would cast out our doubts, and that you would show us Christ for who he is. And we ask this in his name. Amen. One of the most uh, quotables uh, about the topic of Christianity and doubt uh, is Tim Keller here in his book. And I want to put it up and look at it for a brief moment as we go into the word today. It says, A faith without some doubt is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Today we will spend some time in the reflection of our 
doubt. Now, doubt is not necessarily a good thing, but it is healthy to experience it. It is a natural part of a believer's journey, and it can be, and often is, subjected for our good, as we know that God can take bad and bring much good, that he can take weakness and give much strength. So as we go into the text today, I want to describe a little bit about the context on where we find the narrative here in the Gospel of Mark. We see that Peter, James, and John went up to the mountain with Jesus, and there they witnessed Jesus' radiance and divine glory as the Son of God, God the Son, through his transfiguration. The other disciples were in town ministering, preaching the gospel, teaching, casting out demons. And we see that Jesus and the three come down from the mountain and they are greeted by a crowd. And when the crowd sees Jesus, they are excited, they are amazed and wowed. But we see that something is going on here. They are arguing. And so Jesus asks, what are you arguing about? And it seems as though here in the crowd we have three figures or persons. First, the scribes. Second, the father. And third, the disciples. And so our gospel message today is simple. As we think about how does doubting interact with our experience of faith, I want us to remember this, that faith overcomes doubt when we know who Jesus is. And it will be up on the screen if you look with me. Faith overcomes doubt when we know who Jesus is. And the three points we'll look at, or three perspectives, would be through the scribes, the Father, and the disciples. So first, the scribes. Here, Jesus uses this phrase, faithless generation. So what does he mean by this? Well, we're told that in the Gospel of Mark, this phrase, faithless generation, happens five different times, yet it's not used to rebuke or discourage the disciples. In fact, it's often more pointed towards the scribes, the Pharisees, and those who generally do not believe. So if you look up there with me at Mark 8, I'll give you one example. In Mark 8, 11 through 13, this is what Jesus says. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, that is Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he, being Jesus, sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So we here we can see that as the author uses this, this idea of faithless generation, as Jesus uses it a number of times, we can conclude that what Jesus is referring to here are those who do not know him as he truly is, as God the Son and the Son of God. A faithless generation here represents those who not only don't know him, but don't care to know him. They don't believe in him, and they don't trust in him as the savior of sin. It is referring to those who want the gifts and benefits of salvation without believing in the giver. 
Or put it more simply, they seek the sign to test him, but they're not truly looking for the Savior for their sins. Though the disciples indeed struggle with doubt, Jesus doesn't seem to be rebuking or pointing this at them. Likewise, we see that out of this faithless generation, a voice cries out. Out of this, out of this crowd, out of these scribes and, and, and arguing and debating, a desperate voice cries out. And we're told that it is a father. A father of a boy who is demon-possessed with an unclean spirit. A desperate father speaks up. He's not perfect. He doesn't fully believe who Jesus is and what he is about, but he is sincere. He is desperate and has some measure of humility to come to Jesus and plead with him. So now as we draw our attention to the Father, we can see that it's a desperate man. It's a man who probably, no doubt, went to the scribes multiple times to seek wisdom through their knowledge, practiced through their religiousness, and over the years found that they could do nothing for his poor son. And as he came into town, perhaps he saw the disciples who were now well-known to cast out demons and teach and preach. And those who follow Jesus, perhaps he thought, maybe the disciples can heal my son. And yet we know immediately in this story that the disciples could not cast out this spirit from the boy. So then as Jesus comes down after his transfiguration with his disciples into town, all the crowd now turn to Jesus in amazement, and they go, maybe now something's going to happen. Some are excited for the wrong reason. Some are excited for the right reason. And yet, as we look at this father with mixed feelings and excitement and desperation and definitely some doubt, When Jesus says what's going on here, he turns to Jesus and he says, Teacher, not yet Lord. The Father doesn't know him as Lord yet, but he addresses him as teacher. The Father says, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus says, bring him to me. And, uh, you know, if if there were a movie or if there was the documentary, it would be uh, so interesting to be able to see it so we can pick out the tone. But I think I can confidently say that as Jesus says this, it is with compassion and with understanding to this father's desperate plea. And he says, bring him to me. And parents, you know what it feels like to feel so helpless as you raise your children, whether it's through sickness or just developing socially or bullying or even struggling into faith. We know how helpless we often feel and for those of us who are praying for salvation for our loved ones and friends or for those who are going through a difficult time and we're trying to help them and encourage them we know how helpless and desperate it can be 
when we can't do much about it. Hey, what does Jesus say to the Father who is in the same predicament that you and I find ourselves in so often? Bring them to me. We're told that this child had been possessed by a spirit since his childhood. This wasn't recent. This was since he was a young child. You can imagine the chaos and the devastation, the long days and endless nights, the near-death experiences, the sense of helplessness, the ever-wandering hope, and the constant subtle hum of hopelessness. The father of the boy pleads with Jesus. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. We see that the father, as he makes his desperate request, is not sure if Jesus can do this. The scribes couldn't offer any help with all the wealth of their knowledge and religiosity. Even Jesus' own disciples who followed him couldn't cast out this unclean spirit. And so being fatigued and discouraged and trying to hold on some kind of hope, yet filled with doubt, he says to Jesus, if you can do anything. Yet Jesus turns this around as a teaching moment. He turns it around because the issue is not Jesus' ability, but rather the Father's unbelief. The importance of the situation is not can Jesus do it or can he not, but rather the issue that is drawn to our focus is faith. Do we believe that Jesus can do anything? So here Jesus actually, as he is turning this around, isn't pushing the Father away, but actually stepping closer to him to teach him. The Father's lack of faith, his blindness to who Jesus really is. Jesus is not just a miracle worker or an exerciser of demons. He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, the one through whom all things were created, the one who holds all things together, and the one who through all things are possible. So when Jesus turns it around, the, the Father knows what has just happened. Even though the Father said, if you can do anything, Jesus turns it around and says, what do you mean, if I can? Do you believe is basically what Jesus asks do you believe I can? Do you, do you not only believe that I, I'm some kind of miracle worker, but do you believe that I am God the Son, the Son of God, the one who was sent to restore the brokenness of the world? Do you believe? And then we hear the Father's cry, a most memorable line. I believe. Help my unbelief. Pastor Alistair Begg said that the problem is not within the Savior's ability, but the Father's humility. The Father's statement is not a contradiction 
I believe, but help my unbelief. But it's an explanation of what he is going through. And also an explanation probably that you and I all experience and wrestle with. In our moments of doubting, in our moments of struggling, whatever it may be, whatever may trigger it, whatever sufferings, whatever questioning, whatever skeptics and disappointments, how often do we cry out, God, I believe, but help my unbelief, but help my unbelief. We see that Jesus then heals and casts this demon out. I want to read us a quote from uh, James R. Edwards. It'll be up here. And this is what he says. Because this moment right here is not just simply about casting out a demon. It's not about winning an argument. But it's about faith and how it interacts with doubt. This is what James Edwards says. He says, true faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. True faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. The risk of faith is more costly to the father than bringing his son to Jesus. For he can talk about his son, but he must cry out for faith. True faith takes no confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus by the weaknesses of his followers. It looks to the more powerful one who stands in the place of God, who authoritative word restores life from chaos, true faith is unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all to the contrary that Jesus is able. What are we to glean from this quote here? Well, if this morning you recognize that your faith is small, if you are well aware that your faith is weak and feeble and shaken, by the softest blow of the wind as you follow Jesus, then you are actually in a good and healthy place. If you feel weak and desperate, and in fact you are not confident in yourself, then you are a step closer to receiving the joys and the miracles and the working of God's grace in your life through Jesus. And you're on the right track. If you feel inadequate in your walk with Christ, in your Bible studies, as you lead it or participate in it, in your tough moments throughout the day at work or at home, then you may actually be doing pretty well in your spiritual walk. Now all you have to do is turn to the one who is able. We're told that after the spirit left the boy, the boy fell, and he looked like he was dead, and most of them said, he's a corpse, he's dead. And we see Jesus do another work here. Not because he is simply able to do it, not because he has the power to do it, but more because this is exactly what he came to do. More because this is his mission. 
more because this is the way he is showing a glimmer and a reflection of what he will do in his own death and resurrection, a glimmer of what will happen to all those who believe in him and go to him in humility and desperation. What does he do? We're told that he lifts this boy up by his hand, and the boy who looked seemingly dead to the crowd arose. You know, there's a similar account in Mark 5:41 when Jesus heals Jairus' daughter. We're told similarly that she looked dead. And Jesus says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And everyone laughs at him. Everyone laughs because to the human eye, in that situation, she is so surely dead. But yet Jesus says, she's not dead. We're told that he goes into the house and he says to her, Talitha Kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And we're told that immediately the girl got up and began walking. Jesus doesn't simply have the power to heal, but to restore life to what is seemingly dead. He can raise the dead to life and even, in fact, give eternal life. Why? Because he has the power to even overcome the grave, sin, and death not only for himself, but for all those who believe in him. Again, James Edwards notes that Jesus is the more powerful one, that these evil spirits and Satan and the enemy is simply on a leash, that Jesus is the powerful one whose chief mission is to bind the strong man and liberate the captives, that he is able, he is willing, he is compassionate, and in our disbelief, as we struggle to believe if we come to him and having seen him who, for who he is, to not say simply teacher as if he is a holder of knowledge or secrets, but to say Lord, my Lord, who you have compassion. And if, if you are willing, will you heal? Will you bring about restoration? Will you bring about joy? We bring about peace and rest and steadiness in you. This is who Jesus is. He is the one who binds up the strong man and liberates the captives. The disciples constantly doubted, but the Lord seems to not just rebuke them, but teach them and love them and be patient with them and that is how it is with us who cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. So let me conclude with the final point as we look at the disciples. We saw that in the first point, the scribes on the spectrum of doubt and unbelief fell more towards the unbelief, that they were not willing to see who Jesus was. They denied him. They were testing him. And it wasn't a doubting of faith. It was a downright plain disbelief and denial of who Jesus is. Yet from this faithless generation, from this crowd, we see a desperate voice of a father emerge who says, not as a contradiction, but almost as a confession, I believe, help my unbelief. And then we also see the disciples here who are also wrestling with doubt. You know, we often think that the disciples in the Bible were seminary graduates 
gospel-centered, eloquent preachers, that they were unshakable followers of Jesus like the Marine Corps and Navy SEALs of Christianity, that they had the power to cast out demons and that they were unstoppable and they never struggled or wavered. The reality is that the disciples were more like fishermen and tax collectors. They always struggled. They always struggled with understanding with what Jesus is doing and what he's saying and who he was. They they constantly doubted after witnessing amazing and miraculous things. Friends, I hope you can relate and see that you're not too far. You're not too different. You're not beyond reach, nor are your children, your family, your friends, the loved ones that you are praying for. If you identify with the disciples here, know that they're not some super amazing Christians who never wavered, but they are ones as they follow after Christ, wrestle so easily and often with doubt. And yet Christ is patient with them, is loving with them, is tender and firm, but draws near to them. Let me give you a quick example. In Mark 6, some of us know the story. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Five loaves of bread, two fish. Feeds 5,000 people, and there's so much left over, we're told that 12 baskets full of food remains. Then again, in a separate occasion, Mark 8, we're told that Jesus feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few small fish. And everyone had their fill. Everyone was satisfied. At the end, there were seven baskets full of food. The disciples were there. They were handing it out. They witnessed it. Then we're told that later in chapter 8, the disciples are sitting there hungry. And they start to say to themselves, what are we going to do? We don't have any bread. And Jesus looks at them and he says... Do you not yet understand? He asked his disciples, remember when there were 5,000 people, we had five loaves and two fish, what happened? He said, well, Jesus, we fed them all. They got some food. We got some bread and fish. Okay. How many baskets full do we have left over after people had their fill? We had 12 baskets, Jesus. And Jesus says, what about when there were 4,000 people? We had seven loaves and, and just a few small fish. So yeah, well, Jesus, we had seven baskets full of leftover food too. And Jesus says, and you're here squabbling about your hunger, about the fact that you have no food, as I stand right in front of you, with you. Do you not yet understand? But here's the beautiful part. Jesus doesn't abandon them for their lack of faith. He doesn't just walk out on them saying, okay. If you can't believe in me after witnessing me feeding 5,000 and then 4,000, if my math is right, you can check it on the calculator. That's that's probably about, what, 9,000 people. If you don't believe and and see now, you're part of the faithless generation. I'm out of here. Jesus doesn't do that. He stays with them. He continues with them in their walk of faith. Remember in the beginning when we looked at the text in Mark 8 when Jesus talks about faithless generation after the Pharisees tested him, what did Jesus do? He said, oh, faithless generation, there will be no sign for you. And he left them. Yet here for the disciples who doubt, the disciples who are struggling, the disciples who are just hungry and even in that moment forget about Jesus' faithfulness to them. Jesus doesn't leave them. He stays with them. 
So back to our text at hand. After Jesus healed the demon-possessed boy, we find Jesus and his disciples here in a private room. And obviously, they ask him. Because they were able to cast out so many demons beforehand. They were able to do so many great works. And so they say, Jesus, in a private setting, in a private room, they say, Jesus, how come, how come we couldn't cast this demon out? And again, you know, if I were Jesus, I would have rebuked them. I would have felt so ashamed of them. I, I would let them know, this isn't JV, man. You're going to be out there. You're going to be representing me. You can't even cast out one demon. Can't, this can't be happening. You're, in a, you're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing me. Go out there, and I want each of you guys to exercise ten demons each, and don't come back till you do. We've got to get some more reps in. Do you still not believe? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't rebuke him here. As they're together in a private setting, as the disciples ask him, Jesus, how come we couldn't do this? He's not ashamed of them. He's not angry at them. He teaches them. He said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so what is Jesus teaching the disciples here? Well, the practical application isn't simply that we need to pray more or engage in the activity of prayer as if the activity or practice itself can yield any power. Rather, what Jesus is, is, is getting at here, what Jesus is doing is taking his disciples, is taking you and I and deeper still because what is prayer? It's not simply an action or a duty or, or emotion or a practice. Prayer is how we humbly exercise our little faith and come to the Lord and say, I need your help. I need your power. I can't do this on my own. I'm nothing, but I know you can do all things. In fact, I know that only as you strengthen me, I can do all things. The disciples couldn't cast the Spirit out, perhaps because they have grown prideful. After casting out many demons and performing amazing works, teaching and preaching in the towns, perhaps the disciples got a little full of themselves and tried to do this simply on their own strength or merit or repetition or experience. And here, perhaps it was a humbling moment for those who follow Jesus to remember no matter what accomplishments are in the past, that we are always to desperately cling on the power of Jesus who is able to do all things. Perhaps in this moment, it was a teaching moment for the disciples as they wrestled with this failure and as doubt crept in to turn to Christ. Perhaps here the disciples were told, why didn't you bring him to me? As Jesus instructed the Father. So for you and I today, this morning, I want to encourage us and challenge us. If there are things that are causing you to doubt, that's okay. But bring it to Jesus. As he says, bring it to me. He doesn't chastise or rebuke the disciples, nor us. I believe he calls us deeper and deeper still into dependence. So that our little, minutia, minuscule, almost intangible amount of faith can overcome our doubts.
as we remember that Jesus is the one who binds up the strong man and sets the captives free. He doesn't leave the disciples. He stays with them. So what are we to conclude? In Jude 22, it says, if you look up with me in Jude 22, it says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Such a simple verse. And have mercy on those who doubt. Why? Because Christ has mercy on us who doubt so often. Friends, faith overcomes doubt when we know who Jesus is. Not simply seek after what he can do. Let's go to the Lord and respond in a time of prayer.